0: The ethicist Stanley Hauerwas wrote the following in an essay in his book, A Community of Character. He said, what we need is not a principle or end, but a narrative that charts a way for us to live coherently amid the diversity and conflicts that circumscribe and shape our moral existence. What we need is not a principle or an end, but a narrative. We're going to think about that today. We navigate our lives, you and me, less by principles and more by stories. Maybe to put the matter a bit more accurately, the meaning of the principles that guide our lives are embedded in the stories we tell about ourselves. So when I was a child, I was told that DC's Superman fought for truth, justice, can you finish it? and the American way. Well, what is truth? What is justice? And what exactly is the American way? Now, you could look all those terms up in a dictionary, I suppose, or Google them and find articles. But you probably would find those sources less helpful than than actually sitting down and reading the comic books and figuring out what those terms meant for Superman, and how he determined to live them out. Each of us has a canon of stories that help us to navigate the world. Some of those stories come from our own experiences, some come from people close to us, our family, our friends, some come from our culture and our community, and some come from study. If I were to ask a person, why they don't like mathematics, or why they're afraid of the dark, or why they have a short fuse, or why they cry when they hear a particular song played, most people will respond to me by telling me a story. Stories are ways of explaining to ourselves and to others why we think what we think, why we do what we do, why we are as we are. And even more than that, stories are the way that we engage with the future. A lot of this is maybe subconscious, but it's true nonetheless. When we're confronted with a new situation, we quickly draw on our memories of previous experiences in order to decide how to meet this new challenge. And those memories are stored in our consciousness in the form of stories. And as helpful as stories are in providing us a type of stability in the world, And as useful as they are in assisting us to find our feet in unfamiliar circumstances, stories can also be prisons. And this was the case for King Saul. The story that made Saul king also dictated the narrative of his kingship. Near the end of Samuel's time of leading the people of Israel, Israel was anxious to change the script. They did not like the story they had been living. They wanted to change stories. Up until that point in their history, they had been led by intermittent leaders chosen by God. And those leaders were rarely, if ever, national leaders. They were mostly local leaders. And none of them had ever unified the country and provided a season of peace and security for all. In short, the story out of which and into which Israel had been living, it was not working for them. It was not giving them the life they wanted. So they wanted a new story. So they started shopping around for better stories, out of which and into which to live. And eventually they found one. And it was pretty easy to find. It was a common one in the ancient Near East at the time. We find Israel's summary of the story they wanted in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 to 20. They said, We are determined to have a king over us, so that we also may be like other nations, and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. The story Israel wanted to live out of and into was one of conquering and conquest. They noticed that the enemies that kept defeating them all had something in common, they all had kings. That is, they had a unified, stable form of government that allowed the whole nation to be united in a common end and unified in a common defense. And Israel wanted to be done with the story of judges and embraced that story, the stories of kings, the story of unified nations under one stable, never-ending governmental structure. Now Samuel tried to warn them of the entire story of kings. And the cost at which that kind of unity is to be purchased. In First Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 to 18, Samuel told the story in this way. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He'll take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take one tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But despite that warning, Israel was certain that that was the story they wanted to live in out of, and into. So God gave them a king. In the passage we're considering today, we see that Saul lived into that story quite well. He was exactly what they said they wanted. Saul's reign was a lived-out story of one battle after another. They wanted someone to lead them in battle, and he went to war constantly, which is exactly what they wanted. The text tells us that Saul fought against Moab, Ammon, Edom, Zobah, the Philistines, and the Amalekites. Saul's was a life and a story of war. Why? Well, that's why they wanted a king, so they could live into that story. So in this way, Saul, as I said, was precisely what they were looking for. He was the embodiment of the story they had chosen to celebrate one of conquest and of conquering. And that story shaped more than Saul. It shaped the entire culture of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 52 says, There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong or valiant warrior, he took him into his service. The stories embraced by cultures and communities determine how gifts and graces are used in different places. In our culture, people who are tall and athletic, if you've ever been tall and mildly athletic, what's the first question people ask you? Do you play basketball? (laughs) Do you play sports? Right? They ask you. They're expected to play sports. People who are good with numbers and abstract reasoning are expected to pursue the sciences. People who are creative and inventive are encouraged to pursue the arts or to become entrepreneurs. People who are good with their hands and good at problem solving are encouraged to be tradespeople. Well, in Saul's day, any strong or valiant man was expected to join the military. Why? because this is who Israel was. This is the story that shaped them, a story of wars and warriors. And every child born in Israel in those days was scripted into its plot line. Every narrative has its figurehead, its banner carrier, its quintessential characters who embody the best and worst of what a society wishes to produce. Prior to the days of Saul, the hero in Israel The highest person to aspire to be had been one who walked with God. That had been said of Enoch, who avoided death because of it, Noah, who also avoided death because of it, Abraham, Moses, and most recently Samuel. All these were called ones who walked with God. They were the heroes of the old story, those who walked with God. But Israel had changed the script. Now, in the news story they were telling, the warrior king was the hero. And in changing stories, Israel had changed both her culture and her future forever. This change of script is part of what made Jesus so hard to recognize for the people of Israel in his day. The idea of the Messiah, of the anointed king who was to come, for the average Israelite was shaped by the narrative chosen by Israel, In the days of Saul, the Messiah was to be a violent, conquering figure who was expected to overthrow Israel's enemies, subjugate the nations, and usher in a season of theological, political, and military dominance for the people of God. That popular idea of the Messiah was scripted by the people of Israel nearly a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. We read it earlier, and here it is again in its first form. We are determined to have a king over us so that we also may be like other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. Even Christians today still struggle to liberate Jesus from the story Israel told about kings 3,000 years ago. That was Israel's story, but it was not God's story. And so when God came to us in the flesh of Jesus, he didn't conform to the pattern of Saul, and that was a problem for his contemporaries. Jesus was living into and out of a different story, and the Gospels record numerous occasions in which Jesus tried to explain his story to his disciples, but they were so shaped by the stories they believed defined things for them. They struggled to understand what he was even saying to them. An example of this conflict of narratives can be found in Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 27. The gospel writer has recounted the story in this way. A dispute also arose among them, these are his disciples, Jesus' disciples, as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest, as the first. Now, if you're following the story of Saul, that's easy. Who's the strongest? Who's the fastest? Who's the quickest with a sword? I think Peter would have won that battle, maybe. I don't know. He was quick with a sword, though he wasn't very good with it. But he, Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles, non-believers, lord it over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? but I am among you as one who serves. In truly becoming a follower of Jesus, we change stories. We embrace the story of God as preserved in the Christian story as our story. We don't, as the Israelites did, look to the surrounding nations for our stories. That's what they did in the days of Saul. We want to be like the other nations. You know what they have? Kings. That's not how Christians navigate the world. We don't look at the surrounding nations unbelieving nations for our story. We receive a story out of which and into which we live from God through his chosen prophets and apostles. And the thoroughness in which we have immersed ourselves in the narrative of God can be quite clearly seen in the kinds of individuals we choose to lead us. Jesus has explained that leaders who truly follow him, who truly live out of and into the story that has been delivered to us by God, are meek, humble, and oriented to service. The way a person leads reveals the story out of which and into which they are living. And the leader a community chooses, the leader's communities praise and celebrate and follow Reveal the story out of which that community is living. Leaders both shape and are shaped by the communities they serve. They are mirrors and makers of each other. In Saul's day, Israel wanted a warrior king to lead them in victory in battle. That's what they wanted. And Saul embodied that story throughout his life. But the prophets of Israel have not celebrated Saul nor have they celebrated Israel in his day. He successfully lived out the story they gave him to live out, and all the while he and Israel wandered further and further from God. Now David too, who's coming soon in 1 Samuel, he also was a warrior king. In that way, in choosing David, God did not force Israel to forsake the story they had scripted in the final days of Samuel's leadership. They had chosen who they wanted, and God was not going to force them to change the story. But David was, and maybe if we're together long enough before this time ends, we'll get there in 1 Samuel, who knows, to see how David, even though he too begins as a warrior king, he was a step away from the narrative of Saul and a step towards the narrative of what would become the narrative of Jesus. David struggles. He's a very victorious warrior, but he struggles with that. He is more a poet. He is more a prophet. He is more uh, someone better left not to make the big decisions. (laughs) And we'll find that out later. What about today? What evidences should Christian communities be looking for that might indicate to us the narrative out of which and into which our leaders are living? Well, that conversation was initiated by Jesus. We read it together. Leaders who are living out of the story of Jesus are given to meekness, humility, and service. And the Apostle Paul has fleshed out Jesus' exhortation Even further, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, this is what Paul wrote to young Timothy, who was uh, leading of a sort, the churches in Ephesus at the time. The saying is sure whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. Now a bishop must be above reproach, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be serious, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not greedy for money. They must hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them first be tested. Then, if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. Women likewise must be serious, not slanderers, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be married only once and let them manage their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus." You and I, I think today, often think of bishops and deacons as ordained positions controlled by a hierarchical church government. But those structures did not exist in first century Christianity, so they're not in play in these verses. Bishops were simply elders. It's the word presbuteros in Greek. It just means elder. It literally means old person, is what it means. But uh, elders and deacon means servant. So... Elders and deacons were simply church servants. Paul's instructions in these verses were simply for the selections of leaders in the church. There's no sharp division between the episcopacy, as we say today, and the laity in the first century. Those divisions don't exist. All believers were priests, and there were some given formal responsibilities within the Christian communities, and they had names. They were called elders and deacons. And Paul's advices in these verses should not be a surprise to us. When we read those verses, we shouldn't go, oh, wow, that's the standard? I mean, that should be so common sense to us. They're in harmony completely with the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. In the context of our discussion, they're a warning not to choose leaders out of the narrative of Saul, but rather to choose leaders out of the narrative of Jesus. Therefore, when you must choose a leader, be sure that the person is, and this is more of a contemporary interpretation of those verses, is not guilty of criminal offenses, has been faithful to the spouse they first married, demonstrates self-control, makes reasoned decisions, is respectful to others, is welcoming to strangers, is a good teacher, is not given to inebriation, is gentle instead of violent, is not anxious to argue, is not greedy for possessions, raises their children in the fear of the Lord and the way of Jesus, is not a new follower of Jesus, and has a good reputation with non-believers. That's what Paul says. Now those are not laws. They're not qualifications exactly. They're not like something you'd fill out on a resume. They're evidences of what story a potential leader is living out of and into. Paul's list is an expanded way of saying simply, a leader in Christian community should embody the story of Jesus not the story of Saul or the story of other world leaders. In the story of Saul, the Israelites got exactly for what they were looking. The kind of leader that appeals to a community reveals the story out of which and into which that community is living. If you want to know a culture, you need only look at who they elect to lead them. The way a leader leads also reveals the story out of which and into which that leader is living. Trees always bear their fruit. May we learn from the long history of Israel that those who truly follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, such folks live out of and into the story of God. The heroes of the story of God are those who walk with God. This is the highest aspiration of those living out of God's story. It's not that they would succeed or achieve, be wealthy or powerful or influential, be celebrated by their neighbors or awarded by their companies. The highest aim of the story of God, the highest character it intends to develop, the hero upon all heroes of the story, is one who at the end could be said to have walked with God. The villains of the story of God are those who rebel against him. Those who will not submit to his leadership, to his teachings. Who refuse to walk by the story of God and, like Israel, want to walk by the stories of the other nations. Or who want to script the story themselves out of their own desires and needs. These are the villains in the story of God. The heroes are those who walk with God. May the church again choose God's story as our story. May we choose that story to be the one into which and out of which we live. And may we choose leaders who are committed to the same. Amen.